hey, thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of The Stone Table. My name is Travis, and I'm the teaching pastor here at Baylife Church. And I'm Mickey, and I am a worship arts coordinator here at Baylife. And because we work here at the church, we are keenly aware of the fact that Christmas is less than a week away. Less than a week away. <laughs> it's, it's really, really close, and we're both kind of losing track of time at this point in an effort to get things I ready. I went Christmas shopping this morning. And how did that go for you? It was a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah, I'm I'm glad you did that. Thank you for for You're serving welcome. our family of course, in that way. Anytime. I appreciate it. <laughs> and with all of all of the busy busyness that comes with Christmas shopping and Christmas parties and it, it does seem like it gets really easy for us as Christians to forget about really what it is that we celebrate in the Christmas season, which is this earth-shattering reality that God became a human being. And even when we do sit down and take the time to reflect on that, it's such a big concept that I think it's kind of hard for us to wrap our minds around. Which is why we brought on a very special guest for today's episode. We did. So this week we're sitting down with Mrs. Karen Ellis. She is the director for the Center for Bible and Ethnicity at Reformed Theological Seminary in Atlanta. She's got just an incredible academic background. She has two master's degrees. One is in fine art from Yale, and then the other one is in religion from Westminster Seminary. And she's actually doing her doctorate at Oxford right now on ethics. So she's so cool. It's unreal. Yeah. And on top of all that, she works with the persecuted church globally, mm-hmm. and she has her job at RTS as a director. And then she has this incredible ministry with her husband, Carl, as they sort of travel and speak and give lectures. She's taught at a, a couple of the Gospel Coalition conferences over the last few years. She's yes. she's brilliant. Yes. And this is a really cool interview. What, what were some of the things that stood out to you? Well, one of the things that I really loved is how she was able to so eloquently describe what the incarnation is in addition she also talks about how how the incarnation applies to her life as a christian and how it shapes the work that she does right yeah one of the concepts that i've, I've noticed that she draws out and then her husband also talks about a little bit too is this idea of not just being orthodox epistemologically which is a, is a giant fancy philosophy word which basically means not just believing the right things but also being ethically orthodox, which is taking what you believe and applying it to how you live. And doing the right thing. And doing the right thing in light of what's true about mm-hmm. God. And I think that's that's what's really cool in this interview is she talks about not just, hey, here's what the incarnation is, but here's what we do with it. Here's how we treat people in light of it. Here's how we deal with issues of injustice. Here's how we advocate for human rights because God became a human being. I will say it's a little bit longer than some of the interviews that we do, but it's such a big topic that we felt like a, a bigger episode was the only way we could do justice to it. And I should also add that we recorded this in our house, <laughs> so so you might hear our cat, Augustine. His full name is St. Augustine of Hippo Low. Yes. So you might hear him a little bit, and you might hear a little bit of an echo because we've got hardwood floors, and so things bounce around a little bit in there, but it's such a good episode. We're so excited to share it with you as we all as a church step into the Christmas season. So for Baylife Church, I'm Mickey. And I'm Travis. And this is The Stone Table. Karen, thank you so much for joining us on this episode. We are so excited to have you. Um, you are calling from Atlanta we were just there about a couple months ago at the last couple days of our honeymoon. And so we went to the aquarium. We ate at a flying biscuit and it was so good. <laughs> but you're a local. If you had one day to go anywhere to eat, anything to see, must have, must visit, what are your top places? Oh my God. Okay. Well, you know, <laughs> uh, goodness, I actually work in Atlanta area. So I'm just now discovering new places like you guys are. Uh huh. But if, uh, let's see, the first thing I would do is I would go to the Civil Rights Museum, but I would see Ooh, it with okay. my husband. I would take my husband, if uh-huh. I were you, <laughs> <laughs> and see it through his eyes because he lived it, but he's also looking at it through a biblical covenantal lens. Mm-hmm. And so he really, he got, maybe I should arrange a tour or something because he really gives a great, like, it's, a, it's just fun to go through it with him. He was there. He was there. Right. And um, he he remembers a lot of these things. So he fills in with anecdotes of what actually was going on. You know, we tend to look back at history kind of very simplistically, but it was a very it was a really complex and confusing time. 
Um, and so he sort of gives you, you know, he gives you that in that input, but he also gives you the biblical grounding um, that I think gets left out of the telling of the story oftentimes, um, that it was a theological movement in a lot of ways. Um, and then he'll tell you stories about, yeah, when I was 10, my dad and I delivered some books and there was Dr. King and he signed my so cool. copy of Stride Towards Freedom <laughs> oh with a Parker T-Ball jotter. And, you know, we still have it in our library today. So he's, he gives you that. Anyways, I would go to the Civil Rights Museum with him. Okay. <laughs> and the other thing, if I tell you I would do it, like restaurant wise, you would probably just say you. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, I would go to CNS Oyster Bar. Okay. Oh, okay. I got to say, I'm not, I'm not a seafood person, so. Yeah, yeah. See? I'm not either, yeah. but I like trying new things. So yeah. Gosh, I would gosh, be interested. Shucks. Yeah. <laughs> there's, there's, there's an art to mm -hmm. enjoying um, oysters. I guess you have to kind of be from the coast, which mm. I am from the East Coast, to appreciate seafood or any coast, you know. Um, like Midwesterners do beef real well. Right. You know, sure. Seafood, like crab and lobster or shellfish, mm. anything that needs shucking or peeling it's i don't know it's for art. me it's more about yeah it's yeah it is it's the art of communal fellowship it's actually a communal event um more about talking and catching up and you know the food is sort of right. what you're doing while you're doing that mm -hmm. so it's it's an event you know watching a little fresh oyster quiver from a squirt of fresh <laughs> lemon juice and, or, you know, pulling a lump of crab out from a leg and holding it up for everybody to approve of your picking yeah. skills. You mm. know, that's that's all a part of the uh, the experience. So anyways, I love CNS Oyster Bar. I love any Ooh. oyster bar that's doing it right. OK, yeah. cool. you, you might have sold me on at least attempting it. Right. Yeah. I might I might be willing to give it a shot. <laughs> Good. They have cooked food too, just so you know. Oh, okay. uh, see that that uh, you definitely sold me now. Yes. <laughs> so we burn every every piece of meat we cook. We burn because we're afraid it's going to oh, be it's raw. It's not enough. Oh <laughs> like it's my not cooked gosh! Enough. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> oh my God. Where are you guys located? So Tampa, Florida, mm -hmm. actually oh on the coast. Yeah. So we should oh. be better at this, but <laughs> well, there's lots of people around who can teach you for sure. <laughs> So Karen, Atlanta is home for you, but even as we were talking before this interview, you travel all the time. Mm -hmm. And even when we initially started talking about sitting down for the podcast, you were going to Rwanda. So could you just explain a little bit about uh, the ministry projects that you're involved in and how it is that you travel so much and some of the things that you're you're doing? Uh, yeah. So uh, one of the reasons that I travel is because I am affiliated with a few organizations that minister to the persecuted church. So I've been working for the last 15 years with a group um, called International Christian Response. It is a small scale uh, boutique agency that assists church planters, um, people doing Christian education, but their hallmark is uh, and we do a little bit of humanitarian aid in uh, mostly in re regions where it's uh, difficult to be a Christian. So we're in 42 different countries um, in hostile regions. Uh, the Rwanda trip you were talking about was actually um, a peripheral trip that I was invited to by uh, Trillia Newbell. Okay. Who's, yeah. I don't know if you know her. Y'all need to have her on. She's a delight. Yeah, we'd love and to. And she's on the board of um, Hope International. And um, they're doing poverty alleviation and empowerment around the world. And I was there in a dual capacity, um, representing Hope, but also representing the Chalmers Center. Uh, and I'm on the Chalmers Center board. So Hope International was using Chalmers curriculum of, mm. um, of uh, uh, poverty alleviation and um, uh, becoming whole, sort of not just doing financial initiatives um, and, and uh, business initiatives around the globe for people in uh, material poverty, but actually addressing the whole person. And so uh, we, in Rwanda, we got to see a lot of business initiatives. Rwanda's on the come up. Um, they're 25 years out since their, the genocide, since the troubles, and um, they've made a lot of really incredible advances in terms of reconciliation um, between the two, uh, the two um, uh, tribes that were at war with each other and uh, during the genocide and leading up to it. But they have um, now turned towards poverty alleviation and 
the ones that are using the business, the Christian business principles, we went with, uh, we went to visit the Arruego Bank, which is a Christian banking um, organization, and uh, went to, from the rural areas to the cities, just to look at social enterprises and, um, yeah, seeing how folks are actually seeing their relationships be healed by using these principles and also really generating income and business opportunities out of nothing like God right. creates mm. and just looking around and seeing what do I have that's a marketable skill um, and turning that into business opportunity. Trillia and her daughter, Sydney caught on, uh, they're doing a new venture with some of the women that are doing uh, basket weaving. Uh, and now her daughter, who I think is maybe, I'm, I'm sorry, Sydney, if I misquote your age on this podcast, but I think she's about 11 or 12 years old, maybe 13. And uh, she started a new business venture wow. with these women wow. in Rwanda, making their goods available online through an online service. So cool. um, yeah, I've been doing these kinds of vision trips. They're more than mission trips. They're actually taking folks, groups of folks um, to see who they might want to work alongside globally and encourage and empower in other countries. Mm -hmm. Rather than starting new works, there are a lot of organizations dedicated right. to mission and new works, but not a lot dedicated to vision, mm -hmm. um, which in my, I guess in my purview is about understanding and expanding uh, our connection between the local and the global. Mm. Right. Out of curiosity, yeah. do you know Celestin with Alarm? African Leadership and Reconciliation Ministry. So we actually had him on right at the beginning of this show, uh, but he's working in training pastors in Rwanda and in mm. Africa at large. But he started yeah. in Rwanda. He had family who survived the genocide. And so mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, there's a lot of great yeah. work going on there. Yes, there really is. Um, I just came back after I left Rwanda a week later. I was at the All Africa Conference, um, which was a part of my denomination um, where I'm in the Presbyterian Church in America, the PCA. And uh, this was a... Uh, initiative started by the Mission to the World uh, International Director for Sub-Saharan Africa. His name is Victor Naka. And uh, he brought as many, uh, MTW brought as many leaders from around the continent as they could for this All-Africa Conference. And we got to meet people from West Africa, South Africa, uh, the, con the country South Africa, West African countries, East Africa, and everybody just met in the same place to talk about um, how we can support and encourage each other. It was fantastic. That's it was awesome. just, yeah, it's just great to see what God is doing around the world. Same story, different contexts, right? But same grand story. And so it's it's that's just part of my delight. It's part of the work that I do. Very cool. Yeah. So we found you through the RTS video of Wisdom Wednesday when you talk mm -hmm. about the incarnation and human rights and their relation. So with Christmas coming up, we <laughs> we talk about the incarnation a lot. But it's kind of a complex uh, concept that is a little difficult sometimes to wrap our minds around. So could you break down what the incarnation is for us? I guess if I were to take it down to its most basic concept, it's, it's I mean, without the implications, mm -hmm. it's as simple as Jesus, who's the non-created person of the triune God. You know, the, the old pastor used to say, God is God all by himself. He's mm -hmm. always been, always been, always is, always will be, doesn't need anything or anybody to survive. He's the non-created second person of the triune God who created everything we know. And he took on a human body and everything that is human and became both man and God. And the implication of that is um, for reasons known fully only to him, mm -hmm. he created a people to worship him, not because he needed us, but because he wanted us, I'm assuming, hmm. um, and therefore created us for relationship with him to enjoy and glorify him forever. So fully God, he had to be fully God in the incarnation to restore us to right relationship with the holy God that Adam messed up. And then fully man, in that nobody can look at him from our own human experience and say, you don't know what I'm going through. Mm. He knows it all. That's how thoroughly he knows us and our experience here on earth. And how, just to go back to the beginning, how much he wants us <laughs> to be able to create a place and a person and a, a, a place for us that says, 
come home. Mm. Yeah. So the incarnation is, I, I'm actually working through T.F. Torrance's book on it right now. It was my assigned reading for Christology, which I dropped. I didn't actually finish my Christology class oh yet at RTS. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm still, I'm doing like the 15 year track. Come home. Yeah. Come home. <laughs> Come back to the class. Come back to RTS Atlanta. We'd love to have you. Yeah, I would, I, I would, lo I would love to stop by. Yeah, we nope. thought about visiting when we were in Atlanta. We didn't have time, but the next time we're in Atlanta, we would love to visit. Oh, come awesome. through. Come through. So where'd you, where'd you, you're, you were talking about Torrance. Yeah. So, you know, as you, as you kind of trace the history of the church, especially the first three centuries, there's all sorts of confusion about how to think about the person of Jesus. Uh, there's, there's debates like Arianism and Donatism and, and all these, these ways we can kind of fall off on the wrong side. So maybe when we talk about the incarnation, what are some of the mistakes we might make? What are the ways that we might get it wrong and maybe not think about Jesus rightly? Hmm. Um, I guess there's, there's so many places um, where the church has either gotten their, what they know about God, their epistemology, or they had good, they had good knowledge of God and they got their ethics wrong. Mm. Mm. You know, there's so many places you could look back at the church and say, oh my goodness, boy, did you guys mess it up? And I'm sure there's places where we're really messing it up today. Um, but I think, you know, there's always been this line of people who kept, uh, who stayed closer to the story of God than others. Nobody's lived the story of God perfectly except Jesus Christ himself. But I think one of the things that consistently pops up through history is that we want to remake Christ and therefore the whole body of God, the body of Christ in our own image, mm. instead of allowing ourselves to be conformed or transformed to his image. Um, I, I call it, um, I call that kind of rewriting the cosmic story. I call it authorial treason. Mm. Um, changing the nature of Christ changes everything about the story that we're currently living out. Um, and we, as his creatures, have no right to rewrite the characters in the story, yet that's exactly what our parents in the garden did, right? And we still do it today, all the way throughout history. Um, we either limit his mission to one thing, like, oh, he's only concerned with personal piety, or he's only concerned with salvation, your ticket from hell to heaven, mm -hmm. uh, and what happens in culture doesn't matter, or his mission is only concerned with the liberation of the oppressed or his mission is only concerned with um, our quests for political or cultural power, that he somehow needs us to have political or cultural power to accomplish his kingdom. And so that's for, therefore these areas, these small finite limited areas are where all our focus should be, or he's only concerned with the concerns of um, this particular group of people or that particular group of people. And when we limit him to one thing alone, one mission, or one aspect of who he is, or we recast him in our image. All these things are temptations, I think, that throw us off the story. We always want a reduced Christ. Uh, we want a Christ we can understand and get our, our head around and, you know, and say, oh, okay, well, he must be like this because he's so much like us that he's limited to only being us and our limited understanding. But he's made it possible that we can know him truly but he's also, because of the nature of who he is, we can never know him exhaustively. Mm. So he's not Christ limited to any of these things. He's Christ the King. Right. Mm. He's sovereign over all things within his creation. And he's making all things new. He knows all things actual. He knows all things possible. His economy is not of this world. Uh, he, his ability to redeem the worst things we create, even the church's the places in history where church has been a blight, he even redeems those things, um, or the things that Satan has encouraged. Uh, it amazes me how he uses them for his glory and the furtherance of his kingdom. He can't be limited by my own limited understanding of him. So I guess, you know, as I read it, misunderstanding Christ's person and his mission and limiting to him only what to one facet or distorting his person altogether, when we do this, the whole story of the Bible gets thrown off. And so then, of course, the question is, well, who is he? Right. And what is, what, and what is, he, what is, what he, what is he doing? Mm -hmm. right? right. As I read it, um, you know, 
I, the most consistent thing through the through the uh, the Bible is that He created His people for Himself, and He promised us, "I will be your God, mm-hmm. you will be my people." That's the central theme for me of Scripture, and that He's promised to keep a people from all nations for Himself, and through whom He will express Himself. And uh, so I'm I'm hugging close to that, mm-hmm. <laughs> as close as I can, you know, yeah. um, by His Spirit as He enables me. I'm just trying to hug close. To that aspect of the story. Amen. Right. So and let him be who he says he is. Exactly. One of the analogies I use, and I'd be interested to get your take on this, is I talk about like a, a the the incarnation is kind of like a serpentine belt. Uh, my like my tire actually just blew out right before I came for this interview, <laughs> so car problems are like at the forefront of my mind. Um, but when I got my first car, the serpentine belt broke on it, and and a whole bunch of things started to fail because it doesn't mm-hmm. just do one thing. That's it's, right. It powers the the alternator and it powers the it powers the air conditioning and it's your power steering and it's I'm probably wrong in all the things it does, but if you look up what does it do, it's a list of 15 things. So to say right. that that Jesus is just about this one thing to the mm-hmm. exclusion of everything else doesn't do justice to how how significant Christ is. That's that, right. That he's making all things new. Brilliant. Isn't, isn't, it he, isn't he good to embed his principles all over the place for us to see? I, it just, it's like, yeah. oh, I was stopped in traffic. And my husband and I were stopped in traffic. And, you know, Atlanta traffic is just a nightmare. Mm. It's the worst traffic in the world. And I looked at my husband and we got up to wherever, you know, to where the stoppage was. And it was one tiny little guy parked on the side of the road. It wasn't even an accident. You know what I mean? Yeah. And everybody, and I looked at my husband and I said, that's just like sin in my life. You know, <laughs> just, <laughs> just, just takes one everything. little, yeah. Yeah. The one little thing, mm-hmm. but it stops everything. And right. he, uh, you know, the, the Lord is so good to put those principles everywhere for us to, to see, but yeah, you know, it's, it's the domino effect. Right. You mess with the, it's in a, in a story, a story's end, the story's end should comport with the beginning. Mm. He says, I'm keeping, I've made you for me and I'm keeping you to myself. You obviously can't keep it. So I'm going to keep the covenant and I'm going to keep the promise all the way to the end. And I'm going to take you to an end that looks like revelation seven, nine, then there can't be any exclusions there. You know, (laughs) the end, the end of the story has to be, has to match where we start. It has to match the beginning. That's Mm -hmm. just, just good storytelling. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's so true. I really liked in the Wisdom Wednesday video where you're talking about the incarnation and how there. you said, and I'll quote this, the fall happened in a body, so it took a body for us to be redeemed. So this touches a little bit on why the incarnation is necessary. So can you unpack this for us? Hmm. Because Adam fell in the flesh, we know from Genesis 1 through 3, He was created for God's good pleasure um, in a place that was set up for his peace and shalom and for his flourishing. And because he fell in the flesh, just like us, and severed um, our relationship with the Father because we were in Adam, um, we all live under that curse. You know, you'll hear lots of songs this season, uh, this Christmas season, you know, far as the curse is found. You know, we live under this curse in the flesh and we're likewise alienated. Um, In the fullness of Christ's human flesh and the fullness of his divine holiness, he bridges that chasm between Adam and the Father. Um, His full humanity and his full divinity had to be both. And it makes the bridge not only possible, it makes, because it happened in a body, it makes it intimate. So when we get to all this language um, in the New Testament, where Paul and, and the writers, of the, 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 they always say in Christ, through Christ, all of that union with Christ language, it makes our union with him intimate. Mm. You know, right. it, the Apostle Paul elaborates on Christ as our flesh and spirit bridge. And he writes that while we were once dead in Adam, we're now made alive in Christ. So why, why did it have to be a body? <sighs> Um, okay, God, I'm sorry. You know what? Um, Corinthians says it better than, <laughs> than I can say it. Go for it. Yeah. Yes. Can I go? For, okay, I, I will never this. rebuke someone for quoting scripture on the right. podcast. Okay, okay. Well, yeah. this, this is going to be a long time. That's but, fine. You know, okay. Yeah. All right. Here we go. Go for it. Um, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? 
But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ had been raised. And if Christ hasn't been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ in a body whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead aren't raised, then not even Christ has been raised. If Christ hasn't been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Mm -hmm. Then those who've fallen asleep in Christ have perished. In Christ we have hope. In this life only we are the people most to be pitied. But... See, I love all the butt gods, mm -hmm. but <laughs> I actually have a shirt from uh, Genetics. She's a spoken word artist. It says, but God. But <laughs> in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For here we go with our dead and Adam alive in Christ. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then it is coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. He does this in a body. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain he accepted he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself also will be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. And then he goes on to talk about, you know, um, you know goes on to talk more with the, um, uh, for the, uh, uh, you know, goes on to talk more about dead and Adam alive in Christ. And he says, how do, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? He says, you foolish person, what you sow doesn't come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain, but God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, one kind for human, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There's a little Genesis language in there. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ, differ from stars and glories. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what's raised and imperishable. There's Adam, there's Christ. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown in a natural body, raised in a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual body. The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. And this is, this is incredible to me. Um, and, and he says even himself, I tell you, it's a mystery. We'll not all sleep, but we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable. We shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass mm -hmm. the saying that's written. Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? This, this is why it matters to me. It informs our identity. It informs our purpose. It informs our past, our present, and our future. And it keeps us on track with the story. And, you know, it, it seems to me the body is a necessary component throughout all of redemptive history. God created Adam's body first. Mm -hmm. Then he breathed life into it, making him a nefesh hayah, a living being. Adam and all of humanity fell in Adam's body. Adam couldn't destroy the entire body even after the fall. John Calvin says, even though the image of God is marred, it's not destroyed. There are still some sparks that glow of the image of God so we can still recognize God's handiwork in each other. And then even at the consummation, we got these glorified bodies. 
So it seems that a soul isn't a soul without the body. So the body matters to God. It's not an afterthought. said it, it's a mystery and it is but mm-hmm. it's such a beautiful mystery and mm-hmm. and the fact that god became human says something about human beings yeah i, I mean i think it should inform the way we think about people right. and mm-hmm. how we think about humanity i know that mm-hmm. the eastern orthodox church thinks a lot about how the, the the union of the word and the taking on of human nature affects what it means to be human so how mm. should we how should we think about humanity differently in light of the incarnation how does this shed fresh like fresh light on what it means to be a human being for me in human rights work i think it forces us to ask what were human beings made for Mm. why what were we made for Um, what kind of life were we originally created to live were we created for destruction or were we created for life um you know whose house are you going to live in you're going to live in wisdom's house leading to flourishing you're going to live in folly's house leading to destruction and the original garden was a house of wisdom and so if i see people being forced around the world to live uh, by somebody else's sin you know by being oppressed by someone else if i see somebody being forced to live in a house of destruction i have an obligation to help them find their way uh, to the house of flourishing or if they're choosing because we do that sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. I, right. Oh, y'all might. Yeah, be I'm holy, guilty. No. I'm, done. No, no. I'm very guilty. <laughs> We're guilty. Yeah. Y'all gonna leave me out here by myself? No, no, no. no. <laughs> okay, okay. Because I've done it. You know, I have chosen. I've made foolish decisions that led to destruction. So someone who's watching me has an obligation to say, "What you're doing is not good. Um, come live in a house of flourishing. This is what you were intended for." Um, you were intended and we and you know in the garden they had access to all knowledge and all wisdom through god the father um the introduction of foolishness and destruction um, comes through rejecting that wisdom so we either have an obligation to show people what the wise and flourishing way is or um help them get free from those who are imposing foolishness and destruction on them that's i mean i think that's that's incredible and I know you, you've just been hired, well, I guess within this last year, you've been hired at R- RTS for this new role, kind of thinking through the mm-hmm. relationship of the Bible and ethnicity and, and issues of ethics. I know that's what you're studying at Oxford as well. So how has the, the incarnation shaped your work around these particular issues? How has it helped you think about those things? Well, I guess when I think about um, the created order, like we were just talking about, Um, and a peace and a shalom that was intended for mankind. This is what we were created for. And, you know, the right to flourish. And then we are living now in this distorted order Mm -hmm. um, through Adam's sin and that that right to flourish is being violated. Um, You know, we, it, it shapes my work in wanting to look around the world and find the places like we were talking about in Rwanda, find the places around the world where the church is presenting to a broken world what it looks like to flourish. Not perfectly, but at least showing people what we were created for. Um, History is actually littered with Christians who resisted the brokenness of the world and um, whose ethics, how we should obey God and their epistemology, what we know about God, they actually matched. I'm, I'm, I'm on a quest to find those folks <laughs> because there's so much, there's so much writing right now about where the church got it wrong. And I'm like, well, good Lord, you know, uh, and, and I don't mean, you know, just wrong, wrong. I mean, like <laughs> profoundly horrible, yeah, wrong. massively wrong, <laughs> yeah, massively wrong um, with, with horrible implications for human. But there were those whose ethics and epistemology matched. And so what my work sort of centers around is finding those people, presenting those folks, um, again, not in perfection, but in, in right intention, um, 
what it looks like for the rest of the world when human rights advocacy is done from a biblical worldview. It has the power to show uh, what God's intention was. It becomes a, a living witness. It's, it's much more than personal piety or a passport from hell to heaven. It's actually um, identity shaping, and it allows people to taste and see with their eyes or through, their act, through our actions that the Lord is good. Have you ever seen this movie called Mully? No, I haven't. I don't even think oh I've heard of it. Oh my gosh. Uh, you got it. You guys, okay. You guys got to put it on your holiday watching list. Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's a great example of what do you do when the world system, when this, a system is so broken and so, I mean, profoundly broken and so broken that it's dependent on other systems that you can't, you can't deconstruct it. Mm -hmm. This guy, Mully, his name is Charles Mully, and he's, he's, he's still alive and working. He's, he's in his 60s. And unwittingly, I don't think he set out to do it, but unwittingly, he builds up an alternative system beside it based on the principles of the kingdom of God, creation, fall, redemption, and, the, and, and glory and consummation and the wholeness of the person. And he ends up building this system alongside the profoundly broken system of the, the Kibera um, community in Nairobi hmm. and the orphans or the, the profound uh, orphan homelessness. Hmm. And he builds this system alongside it that actually indicts the brokenness of that system. I guarantee you, when hmm. you watch this, you'll get to the end of the movie and you'll go, oh my word, how did we get here? from where we started in this movie. Yeah. And there's there's work like that going on all over the world. Um, I think of, a, if you know, look up a, a group called Bonton Farms, Creation, Fall, Redemption, Glory. They're, they're building on these same principles. The folks we met in Rwanda through Hope, they're, they're, they're providing an alternative witness that makes the rest of this broken world go, hey, y'all doing over there right. what's going on mm -hmm. you know and and it's 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 something so my my goal is to use um the platform that the lord has given me to discover uncover and expose you know these folks to the rest of the you know christian community who's sort of wondering what what is it that we're supposed to be doing while we're here um mm -hmm. how do we avoid making those mistakes um, how do I avoid? <laughs> I'm just trying to get through my Christian walk without an asterisk, right. and I and I already got a few, you know. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. All right. yeah. I'm just trying not to collect more asterisks mm. as I go along, right. you know. And there there are going to be asterisks. Thank God for Jesus because mm. He blots them out and He wipes them away. But you know, I want to be able to look back in history and say, you know, who was hugging closer to the story of the people of God? Mm. And um, I'm just trying to get in the stream of yeah. what's already been being done. Yeah, of course. And I think it was in, you were on a panel for one of the gospel coalition. Uh, yeah, it was one of the conferences. I think it was, it was a women's conference, conference that you did. Yeah. And, and you mentioned that as the body of Christ, we are, we're obligated to step in into those situations when we, we see things going wrong or, uh, or people need help. It, it's, it's sort of as the body of Christ, we all function as family and it's mm -hmm. it's a it's a family thing we we yeah. step in and we we seek out where areas need to grow and need to flourish and it's it's part of our obligation as the body of Christ to step in in those moments yeah and try it's, to redirect it, yeah it's family business yeah. you know if we're if we are one as Christ said we are one um, then I, I believe we have a responsibility to take care of the household of faith right um, but also do good to all you know, um, you know, I think there's a there's there's really power in the fact that those those two phrases uh, in Galatians are they appear right next to each other. Do good to all, but especially those in the household of faith. Um, and, you know, it, it, that gives us our, our priorities um, in terms of, um, you know, where we're supposed to be sowing, sort of leaning in, you know, healthy, healthy, flourishing Christian communities. And then that's the witness. I believe that's part of the witness that draws folks in. Yeah. I, I think about just the way that the incarnation shapes how we engage with people. And I was thinking as you were talking about uh, probably six or seven months ago, uh, we got a phone call at the church and it was an organization that asked if there was a pastor willing to do a funeral for a homeless man who'd passed away 
He had no family. He had no friends. The only thing that we knew was his birthday and his name. And, mm. and they said, is anybody willing to officiate a funeral? Somebody's going to come sing a song, but we don't really know anything about him. And, and I said, I'd be willing, but I said, what do you, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? And they said, well, you know, talk for, talk for 15 or 20 minutes. And in my head, I'm thinking, I, I don't really know what I'm going to say for 15 or 20 minutes. We don't, we don't know anything about this person. But then I started thinking yeah. about what I do know, regardless of anything else that happened in, in this man's life, just from the foundations of scripture, that, that he is made in the image of God, that the image mm-hmm. of God is so precious that, that the son of God united himself to human nature to redeem mm-hmm. it. And, mm-hmm. and then I said, I, I know what I'm going to say. And I said at the very beginning mm-hmm. of the eulogy, I don't know anything about this man other than his name in terms of how he lived his life. But what I do know is that God created him in his image and that Christ yeah. took on human nature to redeem human beings. Mm-hmm. And so this man mm-hmm. has value. And, mm. and I think in those ways that the, the incarnation gives us this base level point of contact for every human being, whether we know anything about them or not. Uh, yeah. And it shapes our interactions or it should. I know your husband talks about sort of the epistemological orthodoxy and then the ethical orthodoxy. That we need to not mm-hmm. just know what's true, but also live in light of what's true. And and mm-hmm. you can commit heresy on both sides, right? You can know what's true That's and right. not live in light of it. But when That's right. when when what we know about God affects the way we treat people in whose image, uh, in his image, then then you really have a compelling Christian witness. Yeah. Yeah. No, agreed. That's a that's um and you know what's interesting, too, about that is God knows every moment of that guy's life, mm-hmm. you know, and he was there, um, you know, at, at every moment of his life, you know, watching. That's the incredible thing is, you know, I, I've been as I've been looking at um, theodrama, like theological drama and playing out the story of, um, you know, the story that that uh, living the story of I will be your God and you will be my people is realizing that even people who don't know Christ are part of the story. Mm. You know, they're actually, <laughs> they're in the story too. Right. Um, and whether this fellow knew Christ or not, um, God knows. Mm. God knows. Uh, and that's that's a, a beautiful thing that you were able to, um, you know, to give him, um, I guess what we would call um, dignity <laughs> in, in his, in his home going. But, you know, I think that's the experience of a lot of people in the world. It's a very lonely world out there. Mm. It's very lonely. Um, and this is kind of really on my mind thinking about Advent. We just seem to, you know, there's so many studies that say now that we're growing to be more and more isolated, even as, even as connections and networks and communications grows, we're becoming more and more isolated. Mm-hmm. And um, it's, a, it's a dark world right now. Mm-hmm. Um, just thinking about the course that I teach at RTS Atlanta, just going back for a second, um, I teach a course on Christian, um, Christian, the Christian view of human rights. And we do a lot of this kind of groundwork from Genesis 1 through 3, um, you know, walking all the way through the scripture and understanding where our human rights come from. Um, Does it come from God, obviously, even if you live in a secular society, you know, from a Christian worldview, they come from they come from him. And it's there's a lot of really helpful human rights groundwork that was laid in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Uh, by a man named Ralph Bunch, African-American guy, um, writing from the Jim Crow experience uh, of the American South post-World War II. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that original, unintentionally biblical language is now kind of getting reframed by these definitions of basic human rights, that the the language is being distorted, the terms are being distorted. uh, but I think in the future, we're going to have to really listen um, to how thoughtful Christians are tracking with how language is changing and isolating us, how um, language is reframing how people see their identities and mm-hmm. kind of unmooring us from any kind of anchor that grounds us in something solid to know who we are 
and how we relate to the rest of the world. Um, the terms and the rules are rapidly changing along with the culture. It's not the same world it was post-World War II. Right. Um, it's not the same world it was during the civil rights movement. Um, you know, when we all had a common understanding of human dignity mm-hmm. and we had a common understanding of basic identity terms. So it's going to be really interesting um, uh, to kind of re-educate ourselves in the, in the time to come and to, you know, stand firm in what scripture says about who, who we are essentially at our core and what we were made, what flourishing really means. Mm. Yeah. So as we kind of wrap our time together up, and with Christmas next week, which is unbelievable. Um, so crazy. I can't believe we- I know, right? We're less than 10 days away from Christmas, something yeah. like that. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know what it's like in Atlanta, but I know down here in Tampa, you drive down the street and every other house has like a manger scene or <laughs> or sort of like a, like a silhouette of the manger and mm-hmm. Christmas lights as we kind of- Yeah. In this season, in a culture that's almost haunted by Christianity at this point- we kind of can't escape thinking vaguely about the incarnation. So I wonder yeah. for, for the people listening to this, as they drive past those manger scenes, aside from thinking about whether or not it's actually a tacky decoration, <laughs> what what should maybe what should maybe cross their minds? What should they think about when they when they look to the manger? Um, aside from man, that looks bad on my neighbor's lawn. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I mean, all right, I'm going to tell you, I'm going to say two things, I guess, as we wrap up, but I don't want to leave you with this. But any any time somebody mentions a manger scene, I think about this story about my sister. Uh, My sister had a manger scene uh, and her next door neighbor had a manger scene. And the neighbor's manger scene had a white holy family. Oh, no. My sister's manger scene had a black holy family. And uh, then her neighbor kept switching to baby Jesus's. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so my sister. That's hilarious. My sister had to go over to the to her neighbor and you know bang on his door. Give me my baby Jesus back. You know. Oh my <laughs> but, goodness. Uh, it's just every time I think about manger yeah. scenes. About so funny. Give me my baby Jesus back. Um anyway, but uh, no, I don't want to leave you with that. <laughs> that feels like a capital crime to steal baby Jesus. Baby Jesus, Jesus. yeah. <laughs> You know, he wasn't stealing them. He was just switching them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a hilarious practical joke. Yeah. But um, <laughs> okay, let me get that's that's the carnal side. Let me let me get on the spiritual side because <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I love a good practical joke. Person, mm. um, I've been listening to. Um, uh, I don't know if you guys have ever heard of Dr. Amy Ora Ewing. She's with Ravi Zacharias. She's like the senior vice president of mm-hmm. Ravi Zacharias Ministries. Oh, she's really great. She's been doing an Advent series on Instagram, and oh, they're okay. little short vignettes, um, and they're they're just saturated in the Bible, but beautifully applied to culture. And she's got me thinking a lot about um, the incarnation, especially today from Isaiah's prophecy, and. Um, how the people were walking in darkness. And that phrase has just really stuck with me the last couple of hours. She was reflecting on the darkness of today, that there's a lot of turmoil in the world. Um, My paraphrase of what she said is, you know, we've got world leaders losing their minds, uh, the rise of these extremely concerning people, the global power all over the world. Um, And then the people on the ground restless and protesting um, the cultural ground around us constantly shifting. And we really seem to be in a very significant age. And I say this knowing that every age thinks it's in a significant age, but there's something stirring here that seems new to the world as we're living in it now. And she's got me thinking today that our eyes have become accustomed to darkness so much that we don't realize how significant is the arrival of light. Mm the light of the world. When I'm in a dark room, and I mean like pitch black dark, and I'm stumbling around in the darkness, it's amazing how even just the tiniest bit of light will orient us to our surroundings, mm-hmm. like, like north on a compass. Um, you know, I can remember scuba diving in murky water, losing my orientation really quickly, feeling like I was being tumbled around in a washing machine when I was actually standing still. Losing your orientation and your equilibrium, it's, it's sick-making, literally. I remember 
just as I was about to be sick underwater, my dive buddy came and put his hand on my shoulder. And that simple action oriented me to where I was in time and space. Wow. This orientation in the midst of chaos and darkness and confusion and lostness and despair is what I'm thinking of as I focus on Christ this Advent season. Um, this is a season for me to remember that there's a hope that doesn't merely take away the sin of the world, but helps me bear the burden of living in it. Mm. Life here on earth is profoundly disorienting and it's profoundly disappointing. I need hope. I need hope in an ultimate healing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I need hope in an ultimate justice. And I need hope in an ultimate mercy for the moments when those things appear to me to be always elusive. It reminds me that a day is coming and indeed has already come when the world is going to see the scales of justice and mercy balanced, personal, communal, institutional, governmental, everybody who sees those justice, those scales balanced is going to be satisfied with how Christ balances them with perfect measure. There's safety in the reminder for me that God's wrath is either going to be poured out on Christ for those who are found in him. Um, there's a peace there and there's a spurring on to action to see others so covered. So there's my, there's my identity, there's my safety and there's my mission. Um, so that's what I'm, that's what I'm thinking about, about the incarnation um, as we lead up to another Christmas season. Karen, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us. We are, we're so excited about this and I know our listeners are going to be too. So thank you so much for, for everything. Thanks for having me guys. Of course. We appreciate you so much. Yeah. Absolutely. Hey, thanks so much for tuning into this episode of the stone table. We were so excited to get the chance to interview Karen, and we hope that you were excited about this episode too. We'd love to hear from you. If there's something about this episode you found helpful, or if there's a topic that you would like to hear discussed on the show, send us an email at thestonetable at baylife.org. For Baylife Church, I'm Mickey, and this is The Stone Table.